Well, good morning, Blagnall family and friends. Let me add my welcome to goodies and uh, to greet you in the name and the spirit of Jesus Christ. More than ever, I am feeling the draw into his presence as we more and more feel our fragmentation and a deepening desire and concern over how we can reconnect and connect. I pray that uh, God might give us the grace not just to weather this storm well, but to do it faithfully and to show that by his grace, we are not just concerned about ourselves, but about our neighbors, that we might love God and neighbor better because of these times in which we live. We're helped this morning as we give our attention to the sixth chapter of the book of Ephesians. We are not quite at the end, but getting close to it. And I want to read for you the 10th through the 20th verses of Ephesians chapter 6. Listen to God's word. Finally, Paul writes, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand, stand firm with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me, that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. This too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, as you can see with these paragraphs, we are coming to the dramatic conclusion of Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, which also we know went to other churches in that part of the world. We're reminded here that Paul is obviously writing from a jail cell, from some sort of captivity. And by asking his readers to pray for boldness in declaring the gospel, we can assume that Paul himself is no stranger to anxiety and fear. I think this is important to note because it sometimes seems as though Paul is immune to strains and anxieties that we seem to know all too well and never more clearly than in the season we are in now. His vision is so penetrating. His confidence is so confident. It's understandable that we might on occasion step back and say, well, Paul, that's all fine and good for you because You, after all, are an apostle, and you're so spiritually mature. But that won't do. Because Paul himself was prone to understand the world as a threatening place at times. 
he wasn't immune. In fact, there were some Christians who thought that Paul's gospel was suspect because he had too many hardships. And wouldn't a person who is faithful to God be protected? The early implications of a health and wealth gospel lay in that critique. But Paul says, no, we live in a fallen and broken world, and we ourselves are not yet who we shall be. So here he sits, imprisoned once more, writing to the churches he loved so much, trying to encourage them with a vision of what God was doing in Christ. And what a vision it is. We've stepped back at times as we made our way through the letter to to try to take it all in. Remember those early chapters. He begins by pulling back the curtain on God's purpose that was put into place before the creation of the world. That purpose is to bring all things in heaven and on earth back together under the gracious lordship of Jesus Christ, he says. And it was through Christ, his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, that God put that purpose into play. He gave us life when we were dead. He gave us his spirit to be at work in us so that we might be living participants, witnesses to this mysterious plan of God. And, and this is crucial, under Christ's lordship, already recognized by believers, all of the old distinctions and divisions have been dealt a mortal blow. Even the distinction, the animosity between Gentiles and Jews, a division that has run through all of human history and is still to this day too much with us. All of those divisions, Paul says, are being overcome in Christ and have been dealt a mortal blow. Friends, the church is intended in the economy of God to be the place where the healing of those divisions is lived out where the forgiveness that is offered to you and me personally in Christ is in turn then at work in us and among us, opening the door to a lived reality of God's purpose. So we heard Paul say, live a life then that is worthy of the Christ who is calling you, who is at work within you. By the Holy Spirit, we are invited to live into the reality of the inbreaking kingdom of God, a new society, one that is no longer a place where difference is suspect, that no longer envies the differences in gifts that are given to us, but instead rejoices in those differences because each of us is secure in the love of Christ. In the same way, all of the social structures of husband and wife and parent and child and even slave and master, as we saw last week, these and others have been turned upside down, turned on their heads. The old ways of life, the ways that we use words, the ways that we use our bodies, the way that we use our time and money, all of these have been called onto the table and have been transformed. Paul sees the church as the first fruits of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. Well, the kingdom of God begins to break into human history with the coming of Christ. And if we don't see that, then we have missed the heart of Paul's argument in the book of Ephesians. But here, toward the end of the letter, we discover that there is still opposition to the purposes of God, and that that opposition is spiritual. 
that there are, in fact, malevolent spiritual powers at work whose ways work out in all kinds of ways in our world. These malevolent spiritual powers resist God's grand cosmic reconciliation. Paul doesn't tell us much about these powers. He assumes their existence, and he assumes that his readers will be somewhat familiar with them, perhaps in a way that we are not. John Stott helps us understand the demonic strategy when he writes, Is God's plan to create a new society? Then those demonic powers will do their utmost to destroy it. Has God, through Jesus Christ, broken down the walls dividing human beings of different races and cultures from each other? Then the devil will strive to rebuild those walls. Does God intend his reconciled and redeemed people to live together in harmony and purity? Then you may be sure that the powers of hell will scatter among those people the seeds of discord and sin. And if we were asked, every one of us could tell stories of how that strategy has worked out. We are living through a chaotic time. We don't have to do anything more than read the headlines of the paper before we know that we live in a time of political and social upheaval. We live in a day of increased militarization and powers around the world. And of course, there is this virus that continues to plague us and all of the world. But these powers also work their destructive strategy in less obvious, but nonetheless still effective ways. Tearing at the fabric of the church, through petty conflict and unforgiveness, through a spirit of complaint and grumbling and insinuation and gossip. We've heard Paul speak plainly to these temptations through the pages of Ephesians because these temptations that he was seeing in the churches then are just as true of the church today. These temptations around speech, they plague every conversation. And particularly for us in this academic center of the world where speech seems to be so central. There's always that desire to appear witty and sophisticated, to find an ally in an argument that we are trying to make. These lazy habits can create atmospheres of suspicion that can stifle the work of the Holy Spirit. All of these things, whether large, macro, or individual and personal. All of this bears the distinctive mark of the devil and his schemes. The Greek word for devil is the same as the Spanish word, diabolo. And the Greek word is comprised of two smaller Greek words, dia and balo, which means literally to tear apart. That's the work of the devil. That's the work that he specializes in tempting Adam and Eve, if you remember, whispering in their ear, inviting them to be suspicious of the good God who created them in love, tempting Jesus to disavow his intimacy with his own father, tempting us, marriages, family, friendship, cultures, societies, pulling us apart from one another. That's his strategy. Well, perhaps you are raising an eyebrow at this 
talk of devils, but it's not that the world is some stage where the physical world is just a mask covering the real Manichaean drama between the powers of good and evil. No, it's way more complicated than that. The material world is a world that thankfully does surrender some of its mysteries to the exploration of research. Why? Because it is an ordered world where certain conclusions can be counted on to be replicated. That's why we can put hope in a virus treatment, a vaccine that can actually, we can anticipate what sorts of effects it's going to have because we live in an ordered world that has a certain predictability about it. But there's more to this creation than can be put in a test tube. I simply want to ask you not to dismiss the spiritual reality that underlies and surrounds and infuses everything we do. And perhaps ask you to be a, to do a bit more to consider whether the powers that hold this cosmos together, the powers that account for the most important aspects of our lives, friendship, love, sacrifice, hope, they require us to look deeper than the material for an explanation. They require us to consider that the ancients weren't just all unenlightened primitive fools and that there might actually be a realm beyond our physical existence that speaks to the possibility of an even fuller, richer, and more meaningful existence in this world and that there is more. C.S. Lewis, who, if you know his writings at all, was no woo-woo spiritualist, in his intro to the Screwtape Letters, writes, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall when we think about the devil. One is to disbelieve in their existence altogether. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Well, as you might suspect, I think Lewis gets it about right. It's into this spiritual and physical world that God has called the church to be a reflection of the character and the heart of God, living into the victory that Christ has already won for us through his death and resurrection. But the opposition is real, says Paul, and we mustn't get ahead of ourselves, thinking that we are farther along than in fact we are. Those powers and principalities, even while they have been defeated, have not yet been entirely destroyed. And so Paul says, stand. That's the word Paul uses again and again. Take your stand. Stand your ground. Stand firm. And he exhorts us to resist those powers by putting on the full armor of God. But what strange armor it is. Truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, the word of God, prayer. Is Paul thinking here of a battle-dressed Roman soldier as he follows this warrior theme? Probably. But his imagination is more powerfully shaped by the Word of God 
And here we find echoes of Isaiah 59, which we read earlier in the service, where God is portrayed as one who goes forth in battle to accomplish what Israel could not. There we read, the Lord put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. Sound familiar? So Paul might be filling out a picture of resistance to these spiritual powers by allegorizing a soldier's armament. But he is asking those Ephesians and us to follow God's example in the way that we live, bearing witness to another way, the way of the kingdom of God. And we need armament to do that. The foundational truth of who God is in Jesus Christ wrapped around us like a belt. The breastplate of righteousness that is the heartfelt conviction that we have been set right with God through Christ, accepted and beloved. Ready to give voice to the shalom of God, the gospel of peace. The shield of faith is that trust which knows doubts and temptations, but will not surrender to those doubts and temptations. The helmet of salvation is the assurance sitting on top of our whole existence that God has us and will not let us go. And the word of God, probably not here in Paul's imagination a reference to scripture, although Paul knew his Bible, the our Old Testament, better than all of us put together. But he's probably thinking of Isaiah 11, where the spirit rests on the Messiah who is to come, who by his word, will destroy the wicked. So too, we are to take hold of the word of God, the gospel, and proclaim it in the power of the Holy Spirit, just as Paul asks his hearers to pray for him that he would be able to do, so that men and women might hear it and be set free from the tyranny, the grasp of those evil powers and their destructive forces. And all of this is to be undergirded and surrounded by prayer, that vital avenue of spiritual power and renewal. Think of prayer as the means by which we are equipped with the armor that we need. If you're reading the the NIV, it's not very helpful here in the way that it puts this talk about prayer in a separate paragraph. It shouldn't be. Verses 17 and 18 should read, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, comma, praying in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. What difference does that make? In other words, Paul is saying that prayer is what we do once we have put on the armor of God. How does this work? Well, I have a couple of thoughts about it. You might have others. Prayer, even in its difficulty as a practice for many of us moderns, reminds us of the larger physical and spiritual landscape that we inhabit. Because in our day-to-day lives, we are tempted to shrink our worlds to that which we can control and manage. And the landscape is just more amazing than that. It is both broader and multidimensional. Prayer also makes it more difficult in the day-to-day practices of life for us to demonize our opponents 
And wouldn't that be a good thing for us right now in the church, in our culture, to make it more difficult to demonize those with whom we disagree? Imagine praying for somebody with whom you might have a disagreement. How can you pray for them? How can you lift them to Christ? You're sobered as you do so in your judgmentalism. You're softened in your attitude toward your opponent. That's the effect that prayer has as we see those people, even with whom we disagree, in the light of one who is made in the image of God and for whom Christ died. And prayer also empowers us to faithfulness. Think of Jesus in the crucial moments when he was tested. What did he do? He prayed. Listen again to Paul's words at the end of our section. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. If you've been around Blackmall for several years, many years actually, we once stood as a congregation and recited the ancient 5th century prayer of St. Patrick, known as Patrick's Lorica, or the breastplate of St. Patrick. I wish we could be together today to do that again, because as we read these verses from Ephesians chapter 6, about putting on the armor of God, what better prayer is there to remind us both of the scope and challenge of the world that we are seeking to to affect and our need for the Holy Spirit's presence and work in us. But even though we are not together in this room this morning, we can still claim this word for ourselves. You're going to find the version of St. Patrick's breastplate a little bit further down in your worship liturgy this morning. I'm going to read it in a second. If you can, if you can get to it easily, I'm just going to pause for a second and allow you to do it and invite you wherever you are to read it along with, with me. <clears throat> but also find it later, if you will, perhaps make a copy of it and put it in your Bible someplace where you will be able to reference it on a regular basis. It's a powerful prayer spoken by a man who expected great things from God. Find that now. And then let's read it together. St. Patrick's Breastplate. I arise today through a mighty strength. The invocation of the Trinity through the belief of the threeness through confession of the oneness of the creator of creation. I rise today through the strength of Christ's birth with his baptism, through the strength of his crucifixion with his burial, through the strength of his resurrection with his ascension, through the strength of his descent for the judgment of doom. I arise today through the strength of the love of cherubim, in obedience of angels, in the service of archangels, in hope of resurrection, to meet with reward. 
in prayers of patriarchs, in predictions of prophets, in preaching of apostles, in faith of confessors, in innocence of holy virgins, in deeds of righteous men. I arise today through the strength of heaven, light of sun, radiance of moon, splendor of fire, speed of lightning, swiftness of wind, depth of sea, stability of earth, firmness of rock. I arise today through God's strength to pilot me, God's might to uphold me, God's wisdom to guide me, God's eye to look before me, God's ear to hear me, God's word to speak for me, God's hand to guard me, God's way to lie before me, God's shield to protect me, God's host to secure me from snares of devils, from temptations of vices, from everyone who shall wish me ill, afar and near, alone and in a crowd. I summon today all these powers between me and those evils, against every cruel, merciless power that may oppose my body and soul, against the incantations of false prophets, against false laws of heretics, against craft of idolatry, against spells of witches and wizards, against every knowledge that endangers man's body and soul. Christ to protect me today against poison and burning and drowning and wounding so that there may come to me abundance of reward. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ in breadth, Christ in length, Christ in height, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit, and Christ when I rise, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. I arise today through a mighty strength, the invocation of the Trinity, through belief in the threeness, through confession of the oneness of the creator of creation. Wow. Our Lord hears and he will answer. Amen.